This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Green Beret Justin Menchaca, his wife Carissa, and his mother Julie. Now, in this incredibly powerful and important conversation, we discuss Justin's journey into the military through both his eyes and his mother's, the moment he was shot in the head by a sniper in Afghanistan, the incredible physical and mental rehabilitation journey he has undergone since that wound, how he met Carissa on Match.com, the incredible healing power they have found from stem cell therapy, cells for Chuck, and so much more. Now, I want to underline that after Justin was wounded, he lost the ability to do almost everything, including speak. So as you will hear now, the progression of his speech is nothing short of miraculous. And his work ethic and his mindset is something that all of us can take away from this. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Justin, Carissa, and Julie Menchaca. Enjoy. Well, Justin and Carissa, I know we're going to be joined by your mother, Julie, in a moment, but I want to welcome the two of you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yes, thank you for having us on. Thank you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? Texas. In the beautiful yeah. hill country, New Braunfels. Beautiful. Well, I know there's a history or a story behind why you ended up there, so we'll get to that when we reach it. I would love to kind of learn about your early timelines, though. So, Carissa, I'll start with you. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I'm from Corpus Christi, Texas. It's a little beach city down in the Gulf of Mexico. And I have one sister and one brother. Growing up, my father has always been in the oil field. So we had an oil field business. And I went to college for business management so I could move back home and work for him. So I've been a bookkeeper for the oil field business since I graduated college. And I just love Texas. I mean, I went to college in New Mexico. I love the desert. It was definitely a different world than a beach city, but I miss the water. I couldn't wait to move back. So so with that, one thing as someone who's not immersed in the oil industry a lot, um, sorry, at all, excuse me, um, we hear a lot of politicking over oil. I've had a couple of people that have worked for BP on here, for example. Um, there's a kind of a perception that a, a president can simply just hit a switch and all of a sudden the oil prices come down. And there's also, um, in my kind of layman eyes, a wonder when we have so much oil in the US, why there's a dependence on the Middle East, for example. So if you wouldn't mind, total random tangent right off the bat, what are some of the myths when it comes to oil? And what are some of the things that you know people probably should know? 
Well, the one biggest thing I think everyone should know is that we're sitting on top of a gold mine of oil here in Texas that we're not touching. So I feel like a lot of people don't realize that's the situation at hand right now with the current presidency. They're wanting to get help from other countries, whereas why not put our own Americans at work and use all our resources and use the gold mine that's under our feet, all the oil, especially in Texas. So I feel like why go help other countries, give them our money when we could benefit ourselves and use our own supply. But there's the oil industry has always been up and down. I mean, growing up in that kind of family business, we've seen very difficult, hard times. You know, you don't know when your next paycheck is going to come or how to pay your employees. And then the next year you're booming and times are great. You have plenty of work. So it's definitely a very stressful industry, but I mean, there's a lot of work involved with that and it's, very rewarding at the same time. So what do you see as far as the manipulation of the prices through a family who actually works in the oil industry? So let me rephrase. Our family business is within the oil field industry. So we're a fabricating business. We fabricate mud mixing plants and bayrite bottles, frack tanks for the fracking process, and then as well as a paint shop to paint that for businesses and have their logos on it. So we're not directly affected by the prices of the oil. I guess those buying our supplies are, but um, with the metal prices, those fluctuating as well. I think when oil prices do fluctuate, then everything else follows in that footstep. So beautiful. Well, I appreciate that. I love all these natural tangent tangents because I'm not from that background at all. So when you were in the school age, you mentioned about having this family business. Was that always what you were dreaming of doing, or was there something else prior to that? It was not. Oddly enough, growing up, I used to want to ride Shamu at SeaWorld. You know, <laughs> when you're growing up, you have a million different views of who you want to be. And I don't know. I just, I love the ocean. I love the wildlife. And I thought Shamu would be awesome. But seeing my father, just how rewarding he came from nothing. And he built up this business. And I knew it's very difficult to, to find people you can trust, especially with employees. And I knew I wanted to help protect my father as well. So I told him, I'm not really sure what to go for in college, like what to major in. He said, why don't you do business management? Because you can do anything with that. And so I went through school, got that done. And I just knew it was hard for me to be away from family. Family means everything to me. So I knew I wanted to get back, help my dad out and possibly take over the family business. But after working there for almost 10 years, it was a little too stressful for me. So definitely didn't take that route and taking it over, but still help him out and do the books and all of that. I actually moved up to New Braunfels and with Justin, we just got married in December. Congratulations. So, thank you. So now I work remotely, but other than that, yeah, it's stressful, but it's rewarding working for your family. Well, Julie, you just joined us. I am going to ask Justin in a minute about his early life, but before we do, you tell me about his early life through the eyes of a mother. Uh, he was your typical boy. You know, I mean, wild, crazy, especially when he was little. Um, but yeah, he was he was an easy kid. Um, once he got hit middle school to high school, he pretty much figured out what he wanted to do. I mean, I think he'd read every book he could on anything military history. He was very into military history, anything any sniper had wrote, special forces person had wrote he'd read up on it and pretty much made his decision and he never really changed. So everything he did in high school was basically geared towards like prepping him for that. Um, ROTC worked out, um, you know, things like that. Uh, the only other distraction he had in high school was if he wasn't at school, 
he wasn't at work. He was restoring an old car that his grandpa helped him get. And that was his baby. I forget what that was in Impala. I forget what year that was, Judd. But um, 66. 66 Impala. Yeah, his grandpa helped him uh, buy it. And so he spent every moment he wasn't at school or in the gym restoring that old car. So didn't have a chance to finish it, though, because he graduated. And two weeks later, literally, was went in the Army. So we kept it in the garage for a couple of years and then he called us and said, you know what, <laughs> I'm not anywhere where I can work on it and keep it. So, you know, we got rid of it, but we almost had to cry because it was almost a piece of Justin, you know, <laughs> he was already gone and that's like what we had left of him was out in the garage. So it was like selling a, a baby or something. It was like, oh no, this is not going to be easy. But no, he was, he was a good kid and he was very uh, serious and mature for his age. And like I said, he just pretty much knew at an early age, you know, what he wanted to do. Although I would say he's a cheap shot artist that paint or what was those paintball guns you guys had? Yeah, he wasn't really fair when we had little competitions. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't. He wasn't nice enough to tell me I wasn't really hidden well until I got shot in the butt or something. You know, so uh, yeah, he's not. He's not beyond cheap shots. You know, hiding and taking you out. But we had a lot of fun. He was. He was a good kid, and we just. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. So beautiful. And what profession were you in? What did he grow up around? Uh, well, when he was little, little. My husband and I were both in the army, um, and then when we we got out when he was three, um, and then I went to school for a bit, and then I was in uh, insurance. I worked for an insurance company, and his dad did. Uh, he was self-employed as a finished carpenter, and then worked his way into a superintendent, and became a construction manager. So his dad was in construction most of his life, and then I just did admin stuff. Later on. Um, I, I started working from home just so I could be at all their school stuff. Like when they were in middle school and high school, uh, I went to work for myself and was self-employed. So I had that flexibility of my schedule to go to three o'clock football games or boxing or whatever, you know, they were doing. So, so I was, I was home and hands-on. So, well, Justin, over to you. I mean, you're the, the focus of this interview and you haven't got to talk yet. So let's, uh, let's start with your early life. What? You ended up working not only in, a, in a, a very physical profession, but at the tip of the spear within that profession. What were you doing athletically and sports-wise when you were in the school age? I was in, when I was little, I played soccer and uh, karate. And then when I was in uh, high school, I box and uh worked out and run a lot so oh I'll yes <laughs> now i you touched on the uh rotc was that the jrotc program in high school that you were a part of yes yeah i um only um went um a year um just yeah so talk to me about that. My son is in it at the moment. And he, the funny story, he got into it because he was taking PE and he about three weeks in said, dad, I'm not doing any exercise. This is so boring. So I've signed up for JROTC instead. And now he's kind of worked his way up to an XO at the moment. So he's got to stay late tonight to help, you know, with some of the running of it. So he's absolutely found mentorship and, you know, a lot of inspiration within that. What was your experience of that one year and how did it set you up for the military? Um, kind of um more disciplined in a sense, yeah. Like um, 
uniforms, um, marching, yeah, just kind of um, ranks and whatever. Started kind of giving you some of the basics. Yeah, yeah. And an understanding of what you were getting into, yeah. Yeah. But it was, um, it was fun, yeah. I enjoyed it. Now, what made you want to go into the 18 X-ray program? So you you were, as soon as you enlisted, please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not from the military, you enlisted in a program that was a, a track to the Green Berets directly. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, um, before, I was just going to be, um, be an infantry or um, ranger um, until... I um, got rank um, until I um, can try out for the special forces. But um, I think uh, in uh, junior high school, I went to the recruiting station and uh, figured out um, they had a 18 x-ray program um, and you can sign up out of um, straight out of high school and I was all in so yeah, yeah. they um the recruiting um, uh, guy um, kind of wanted to test my limits out like um able to um pass the PT test, um, no problem, and run and, yeah, everything else um, before he okayed it, if that makes sense. But um, Yeah, kind of pre-screened. And, yeah, because you took a bunch of written tests, too, because you had to score a certain amount on those entry exams they make you take to join the military. So you had to score so high on that. And then, yeah, then the physical stuff came in. So he had to meet some parameters to to get in that program, but he did. So after graduating high school, two weeks after I was gone and then went to um, infantry school, um, um, OSET, basically infantry, um, um, basic training and AIT for infantry school and then uh, airborne. And then uh, if I would have wiped out knees of the army, um, basically, but uh, since I um, passed all of the requirements and um, passed the everything, Put you right into pre-selection. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was their thing with that program. You had to, you know, pass basic, pass your AIT. Then they went right from AIT into airborne school. So if you passed all that, but if you failed anything in there, then they just basically throw you out and put you in any kind of job that they needed. You know, whatever job the Army needed, they stick you in it. So you're kind of <laughs> taking a gamble. But he was confident enough and just kind of breezed through all that and then just went, yeah, didn't miss a step. 
Well, Justin, the selection process for Green Berets is notorious for having a, a high attrition rate. So many, many people fail out, as you said. What was it mentally and physically that allowed you to progress when so many people rang the bell? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't quit. So um, I can um, um, easily um, pass all of the um, mental, um, physical, um, no problem. And then, yeah, mentally, I was just, yeah. Stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that helps. It it does. It does. You know, if, if, Justin's the type of guy that if anyone ever told him you can't do this, he's a guy that will work 10 times harder just to prove that he can. So, I mean, if it was something he wanted, I don't care what it was. He wasn't afraid to put the hard work in and quitting was just not an option. So he had a very strong mindset going into that, that this is what I want to do. And he did it, you know, so. And what year was it that, that he went through selection? It was 2007, wasn't it? Because we went to your graduation, I think, April in 2008. Um, the, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Either um, past the selection um, in early, not late um, January 2007 or um, February, mid-February. Um, 2007. And then you started training. Yeah. So where did you find yourself deployed first? Um, Pakistan. All right. So this is an unusual thing. Yeah. Normally Pakistan isn't, isn't, you know, what most of the guests is either Afghanistan or Iraq, but I want to pose the same question that I do before we get to obviously the, uh, the incident in 2011. Was there, and this is a two-part question, the background of the question is this, the average person, especially in America, gets a very polarized view of war, either a very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, a very anti-war, they're all baby killers, and in the middle are the men and women, or, or you know, one could argue almost children, that we send off to fight for our country. So the first part of the question, was there a moment that you got over to, whether it was Pakistan or somewhere else, that you realize, regardless of the politics, that there was some some atrocities, there were some horrible people that needed to be taken care of that you saw with your own eyes? Uh, yeah, yeah. In Pakistan, the our um, team was um, tasked with training Afghan, um, uh, Pakistani um, special forces mainly yeah just um a lot of training and a lot of training um medic um um, learning no teaching medical stuff um, basement basic um marksmanship and then me and my bravo weapons guy snipers school but i remember you saying when you guys did that sniper school for them it was kind of a weird feeling because when you had the few 
that were really good and kind of naturally talented at that, that you realize that these might be some guys that would be yeah. possibly shooting at you later on. And you're the one training them. You're arming them, you're training them. And some of those guys were good and some of those guys weren't, and they were kind of all mixed in there. So you didn't really have a clear, you know, it's like who you're training. And one day some of these guys might be shooting right back at you, you know, and you gave them the skills to do it. That's, that would be kind of a weird feeling, you know? I just remember him telling me that and I was like, yeah, that, you know, you, you didn't know over there because the, the bad guys got mixed in with the good guys. But yeah, Pakistan was a, basically, it wasn't a combat mission. It was a training mission, right? You guys were over there for what, 10 months? Yeah. And, 10 months. Something like that training. Yeah. So that one was predominantly a training mission. Okay. So the other side of the, the, the question, when we think of how it's portrayed to the general public we're at war with afghanistan we're at war with iraq the reality is the people of afghanistan and iraq are being terrorized by extremists in their own country so a lot of these poor men women and children are growing up amid these combat zones were there any moments that you remember of kindness and compassion amongst these these wars that you found yourself amongst um yeah um a lot of times like um um i um hung out um, with the um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, just um, not all um, are bad um, and just um, um, they love their country and uh, we are just um, fighting together and training together and yeah a lot of times yeah like a lot of times um we um help them train um them to basically fight and um if somebody got hurt um they can um take care of um their self not um Americans, um, um, like if that makes sense. No, it does completely. So you gave them the tools to be able to help their own people and and you guys if you happen to be hurt around them as well. All right. Well, I would love to kind of walk you through um, July twenty third, two thousand eleven. So you find yourself deployed in Afghanistan. I'm sure, obviously, there's a huge element that you don't remember. So, Julie, feel free to, to step in as well. But talk to me about, you know, the days leading up to that event, if you have recollection of that. Before uh, we um, got to Afghanistan and just every day, um, um, another village just um, patrolling and um, hanging out um talking to um the locals and everything and then uh, eventually the good people went away and um, comes the um the bad guys and just yeah fighting season yeah started and then just uh, non-stop getting attacked um shooting at the base just yeah that day i don't um i 
it's kind of blurry, but I think um, I remember a couple of days um, before I got shot. It's hazy, but yeah, um, not um, when I got shot but before I got shot, but um, we were that day or um, um, the previous day, we were, I was building charges and no, getting ready to um, try and attack um, the Taliban. Um, ambush kind of on them for once <laughs> their own game well, they kept they kept a- attacking from the same place they kept coming in their fort operating base they were in southern afghanistan which is where in, in 2011 they took the heaviest casualties that was where the heaviest fighting was going on so they were in a very bad area and every day from like what his team members told me and what justin like the few times he could get to a sat phone and could call us you know um, he really could never say much, but uh, when they got back, um, they said that it was daily. You know, they were just taking fire, and they kept coming through a certain area where they were attacking their operating base, and they just kind of got tired of it. So I, the the day that he got hurt, that's what he was doing. They had he had he was their demo guy on their team, um, and so he was the one that built the charges and stuff, and he was out actually placing them. So that when they came through, it ambushed them, like, you know, and try to nip that in the bud from them getting shot at and attacked every day because they kept coming through the same area. So they were setting that up. And he was out by his on his own setting up the charge charges that day. Um, and his captain and I think an 82nd support guy, I think, was with him because there was three of you, but they were back. Justin was out on his own and they started hearing radio chatter. Um from the Taliban saying they knew the bearded ones, which is what they call the special forces guys. Cause they all have beards and grow their hair out when they're deployed. So they can kind of dress and fit in with the locals and stuff if they need to. Um, but they started hearing chatter about, they knew the bearded ones were in the area. So even though they couldn't see them, they started sweeping the area with, with gunfire trying to take them out. They couldn't see them. And I think on the first swipe, they, they're assuming, um, is when they hit Justin, he got hit and went down and they lost radio contact. They couldn't get him. And then the 82nd guy and his captain were the closest ones to him. When they couldn't get him on the radio, they went in to look for him and found him and then drug him out of the line of fire and started working on him from that point. But um, yeah, that's what he was doing that that particular day. But uh, he didn't lose consciousness uh, from what his medic who worked on, who's one of his best friends, uh, had told us. But he has no memory. The doctor said basically his brain was, he was operating on autopilot. So even though he was conscious and he was talking to him, um, his right side was already out because when they were dragging him, I think Justin was holding on to his, they said was, you know, with his left arm, he was holding on to his right arm, holding it up while they were grabbing, I think they grabbed him by his rucksack or something. I don't know, some straps and were pulling him. And uh, yeah, but they, they said that he was, conscious the whole time um when they cracked him out in the field everything uh he but he has no memory of it he doesn't you know his brain wasn't recording any memories from what the doctor explained to me because when they offloaded him um and kandahar uh where they medevaced him out of uh 
or into. Uh, the doctor said when he was offloaded that he was still able to, he was still talking. Um, it wasn't until after they had to do the emergency surgery and they removed part of his skull, the whole top left side of his head is the plate. Um, they had to remove the skull for the brain, the brain swelling and to go in and stop the bleeding. Um, and it was after that, that uh, when he came out, he wasn't able to speak. And then they put him in a drug-induced coma just because they wanted him relaxed. They didn't want him feeling any pain to try to give his brain time to heal. So he spent about three and a half, almost four weeks in a, in a drug-induced coma where basically his body wasn't regulating itself. His just some bell or whistle was constantly going off. It was either his blood pressure, his, you know, because uh, your brain regulates everything. It's basically the processing center for your entire body. It runs everything. And uh, when we got the call, we knew it was bad because generally they don't fly you overseas unless they don't think they're going to live to make it back stateside. Um, generally, you just they, they'll tell you, hey, we're going to fly him in, into this hospital. So we'll fly your family out there to meet him when they get in there and they give you a date when they're going to be there. And with us, we got the phone call saying, you know, he'd been wounded and that he'd survived the medevac and, and they waited till the surgery because they didn't think he was going to live. So they figured instead of making two phone calls, they just waited. Somehow he survived the surgery and was hanging on. So that at that point they called us and they had told us, well, hey, we'll have someone calling you every three hours with an update of his condition. Um, and they called us back about 30 minutes later and said, we're flying you to Germany. So we knew it was bad that they didn't think that he was going to be able to live long enough to make it stateside at that point, you know? Um, yeah. So it was, it was pretty dicey. Well, with there. both of you, you know, both parents having a background in the military, talk to me about how you navigated the fear, especially as you knew you were son, your son was enlisting during an actual wartime. And then, oh, yeah. you know, what was that phone call like, if you want me asking? Yeah. Well, see, when we were serving, there was no war going on. I mean, Desert Storm had hit at the tail end of us serving. Um, and I had an older brother that was over there. He was in the Marines at the time. Um, but as far as, you know, it was nothing like what our son was going to experience. Um, and we weren't thrilled about him wanting to go in the military, but it was something that he wanted to do. And we couldn't let our fear keep him from doing what, what he felt he needed to do and he wanted to do. Um, because yeah, we knew a war was going on. He was chomping at the bit to finish his training and get out there and fight. And we were just like, yeah, take your time. You know, um, I mean, we were aware of it and I don't, I don't know. There's, there's no way you can prepare yourself, um, for a situation like that. I mean, luckily he had come home on leave before he left. So he kind of prepped us, uh, thank God. So we kind of had an idea um, of how things would go. So, you know, he when he came home on leave, it's just one of those conversations you don't want to have, but you need to have, where he said, hey, you know, if I'm injured, this is what's going to happen. They have people that will call. They'll take care of everything. They'll fly you to where you need to go. Um, they'll take care of all the arrangements. You don't need to worry about it. I had his medical power of attorney, so he had set me down because he knew his dad would never do it and said, look, if I'm ever hurt and the only thing keeping me alive is the machine, you unplug it. So I had that running in the back of my mind when they said that he's in a drug-induced coma, you know, and at that time he was on a ventilator. He, you know, he had a drain tube coming out of his head. He had a sensor that was implanted in his brain that was measuring the pressure on his brain. Uh, you know, feeding tubes, there was just, you know, 
when we first got to Germany, uh, it was just, it was overwhelming. I could just remember the only place I could see that there was a little spot in the middle of his chest, just like on a sternum that didn't have something stuck on it or, you know, his arms and legs had everything coming over where they were wrapped up. But, you know, when we first got there, we got to the hospital and we're like making a beeline for his room and the nurse stops us. And she's like, have you talked to the doctor? And we're like, no, we just got here. We want to see our son. And she's like, well, you need to talk to the doctor first. And the first thing that's running through my mind is like, we didn't make it because the whole flight over there and it was a long flight, you know, you're just praying, let us get there in time. It's like, he chose, he chose the job. He loved his job. I can't count the times he told his dad, Hey, I'd go to work for free if they didn't pay me. He just believed in what he was doing. Um, you know, I mean, war is not pretty, but I mean, it's just like he took his job seriously. It was his job to protect his team. Um, he's the one that cleared the the IEDs out, you know, watched for him, got him from point A to point B safely. Um, and he just, he loved what he was doing, you know? Yeah, with the Afghan people, like he said, it was kind of weird being out in those villages. It was like back in the Bible times that some of these people don't know what running water is. They don't know what electricity is. And they're just trying to hold their own against these evil people that will come in and they'll wipe out entire villages, especially I remember him saying how careful they had to be because they would want to go in and like help them medically. You know, if somebody was sick, if they had an infection or whatever, uh, give them food, medical treatment, but they had to be very careful because if the Taliban knew they were accepting help, they would go in and wipe out the village elders, wipe out, you know? So yeah, there was all kinds of horrible stuff going on, you know, but he believed strongly. He's like, these people are like against all odds, but yet we're, trying to train them as best we can to fight up, fight this off because they just want something better for their children. They want freedom for their children. They want a better life for them, you know? Um, but he was always very optimistic for them and very respectful of the ones that were, you know, what their mission was just protecting their families, protecting their villages. And, and that's something he could look at and respect and understand. Um, but that was probably the thing that hit us the hardest when we got that phone call. Um, you know, the guy who called us couldn't really give us details because he wasn't on a secure phone. He just said, you know, your son was critically wounded during combat operations earlier this morning. He since survived a medevac and emergency surgery, and he's in very critical um, but stable condition at the moment. And we'll, somebody else will call you in, you know, 30 minutes and give you an update or whatever. So you're just sitting there in shock, you know, and you realize because you can't dwell on it when they're deployed. I mean, you watch the news every night and you see the the guy, the 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 ones that were killed in action. They don't talk about the thousands and thousands of guys that are blown up but survived that are the TBIs, the, you know, everything else that's going on. And that's when it kind of hits you in the face, because like I said, when they're deployed, yeah, you know where they're. You just don't want it because you'll drive yourself crazy. You know, I mean, you just, I know what he's doing. I know where he's at. I know it's dangerous. Uh, you pray and you just leave it with God, and, you know, and we basically did the same thing when he got hurt. But when we got there, it really opened your eyes to how many wounded we had. It was like something you would watch. Probably this was before your time, but like the old bash movies where, you know, the helicopters would come in with all the wounded that's how this was. The alarm would go off at this hospital and buses that had been basically made into big ambulances. And they had like four 
four rows of stretchers all the way down these big buses. And you'd have three or four of them pulling up, loaded. And there's all these doctors and nurses running out to triage them and send them wherever they need to go, you know. And it just blew your mind because you'd like step out of the hospital to like relax for a minute. And then this is happening right in front of you. So you're not only dealing with my son's laying in there fighting for his life, but then you see a bunch of other people's kids and husbands and, you know, fathers that are, yeah, coming in and, you know, it just, yeah, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, and it makes you, especially just being on this journey with Justin, um, the first four years, I was basically, he was my full-time job. I was his personal assistant, scheduling all the the therapies and traveling with him and things like that. And all the places that you're you're in, you know, you meet all these other guys that had just basically career-ending, life-changing injuries. Um, you know, it's amazing the, the medical technology they have nowadays, but it's just, yeah, you just, you, you realize just the catastrophic effects this war had, you know, and, and literally how many, how many guys we had coming back that were just, you know, we knew, we knew when he, when he got injured, but he spent years fighting back because he was bound and determined to be that miracle recovery guy that got back on a team, you know? And, uh, I think that's why in his heart, he just could not, he couldn't walk away. And because he was special forces and they invested so much money in training him, they're like, if they don't want to retire, if they rehabilitate enough to where they could do a support job, they allow him to stay active duty. And that's what he did. Um, but I think, you know, it just reaches a point where you see your old team members progressing in their careers or going to schools. And when you're on a permanent profile, you can't do that. There's no more promotions. There's no schools. You can't be deployed. So you're kind of standing in the so sidelines and it's salt in the wound, you know, to where you just reach a point where it's time to move on and turn the page. And, you know, it's not a failure. It's just accepting this is my new normal and I need to move on with my life, you know, and find my next chapter. Um but it was, it was a lot to go through. I mean, it was just, he's so much better because when he was, when he was first injured, uh, when we first got to Germany, we literally, like I said, we, when we had to wait to talk to the doctor, he was trying to prepare us for the sight of our son. So I guess I didn't faint or freak out or something. I don't know. But we walk in this room and you got a doctor and there was a social worker and a chaplain. So that's immediately, I was just like, oh my gosh, we didn't make it. He, he died. That was my first response. Don't put a chaplain in the room with me when I'm walking into this situation. I wanted to choke that doctor. You know, I'm so stressed out. And I'm just like, that's the first thing that went through my head when I walked in there. And I saw those two sitting there. I'm like, this is not good, you know. And then it was just like, you know, okay, your son's alive, but machines are doing everything for him. We don't know why he's alive because from the shot he took the head, he should have been dead before he hit the ground. But by some miracle, he survived. He survived surgery. Your son's a fighter. That's a good thing. The bad thing is probably that this is what you'll get. He's probably going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life, and you're going to be taking care of him. And then I'm thinking in my head, that conversation I had with him before he was deployed about, you know, if I'm ever hurt, you better unplug me. You know, machines are keeping me alive. And, uh, you know, I'd ask the doctor, and they said, well, he was breathing on his own, but they intubated him when they medevaced him out of from Kandahar to get him into Germany because they just didn't want his body stressing and working that hard. But they said at the time he was able to breathe on his own. So I'm just like, okay, you know, um, but he just kept hanging on. I mean, they were, we were, you know, Germany is usually a quick two day turnaround. 
that's where everybody coming out of combat zone, they go there and then they figure out where they're going to ship them in the United States. Um, and usually, like I said, it's quick two day turnaround. We were there for a week because they just couldn't figure out why he was hanging on, why he was, you know, but he was. Um, and then we got back to stateside. He, you know, he survived the, I, I flew on that plane when they medevaced him back to the States. And uh, we went in when they were combining uh, Walter Reed and Bethesda Navy. They were combining the two hospitals. But um, yeah, we got into there and he was probably for another two and a half weeks, he was in the critical care unit in his coma before they started figuring out, okay, the stubborn guy is going to stay with us. You know, he started kind of leveling out and they were able to detach stuff, you know, take the, you know, the breathing tube and he was just kind of losing things. And then they were slowly backing him off whatever drugs they put him on to put him in that coma, you know, and bringing him out of it. But he was around 200 pounds when he was injured. And by the time he came out of that coma and they woke him up and could strap him into a wheelchair, he went from around 200 pounds to about 142 um, he was so skinny. He was so weak. Um, I mean, he couldn't even hold his head up, you know. And I just remember that, you know, these neurosurgeons travel in packs and they have no sense of humor and they, they don't speak English. It's like they might as well be speaking Chinese, you know. So it's like they try to talk to you and you're like, you need to bring this down about 15 levels so I can understand what you're trying to tell me. Um, but that was, you know, that was another experience of just, but it was just, uh, a lot of information thrown at you because brain injuries. You just, you, you know, they said you could have two guys injured almost identically and they'll have completely different recoveries. So it's like, we can't, there's so much gray area. We can't give you black and white. We can't tell you this is going to happen. That's going to happen. It's a wait and see. You just have to take this literally day by day and see. We can't tell you, you know, he's going to do this or he's going to do that. The fact that he was alive, they were just like, you know, but when they they did wake him up and then he finally went to uh one of the polytrauma centers which is where they send the worst of the worst injured that are dealing with multiple issues at the time i think there was only five polytrauma centers or four in the united states um and we chose to send him to the one that was in uh richmond virginia they they specialized at the time in tbis um but we figured that was also closest to where he was stationed to where when his guys got back off deployment, his team, you know, they would be close enough to come up and see him. So we were trying to keep him close to his support group, you know, instead of making stuff easy for us. It's like we want him where he can see his guys. But that was probably literally like the first thing he did um, when he woke up was um, at the time it was supposed to be a 12 month deployment. And so they were letting the guys come back one at a time for a couple weeks R and R just to have a break. So after he got injured, the first guy back, um, Pete, um, we'd never met these guys before. We'd heard about him through Justin. It's kind of felt like we knew him, but we'd never met him in person at this point, you know. Uh, but his wife picked him up from the airport and he literally went straight from the airport instead of going home, came to the hospital to see Justin and he brought their team flag and he had a team picture that they'd had taken over there. And he told the nurse, he said, we got to find something because I want to put this up in front of his bed because when he opened his eyes, I want this to be the first thing he sees. You know, I want him to see this picture and I want him to see this flag. Just we can't be here physically, but we want him to know that we're with him. 
you know, as much as we can be, we're thinking about him and we're with him. So literally that nurse ran around till she found some thumbtacks or something to where we could tack that flag to the wall. And we had that picture right below it, you know, to where when he woke up, he saw it and, you know, as drugged out as he was, he, he kept, he kept looking at the picture given the side eye cause he couldn't talk at first at all. Um, and he kept looking at the picture and we're like, are you wanting to know about your team? You know, and he's like, so we were doing the blank thing, you know, one for yes, two for no. And uh, it was a very slow process. But, uh, you know, we'd get the slow blank, yes. And it's, so his dad's just kind of questioning. He's like, are you wanting to know? Because he had no memory, you know. So he's like, he woke up in a hospital. I can't even imagine what that would be like to, like, wake up. You've lost almost a month of your life. You have no idea what happened to you, why you're there, and half your body's not working and you can't talk. And you don't have any memory of it, you know. He handled it like a trooper. I mean, practical like he he was, because with brain injuries, you don't know if it's going to change their personality. But all the signs were there, like the old Justin's still there because he just kind of handled everything practically. Like, you know, later on when we had conversations, I was like, what was going on in your head? What were you, you know? And he's like, you know, you look around, you're in a hospital. OK, something happened. And then after that, it's like he didn't really care. He had, He didn't care how he was hurt. He just thought, I got to get better so I can get back to my team. That's all he was thinking was whatever I, whatever's broken, I got to fix it. I got to fix it in a hurry and I got to get back over to my guys, take care of my guys. But the side I think through process of elimination was he was wanting to know if the team was okay. He didn't know at that point, was I the only one hurt or was somebody else hurt? And so his dad was sitting there telling him, no, it was just you that day and explained to him what happened based off of what his team members had told us. This is what was going on. This is what we were told. You were the only one that was shot that day. Um, you know, your, your team captain is calling, uh, you know, as often as he can get to a phone so he can give the guys updates that you're still alive, you're still kicking, you're still doing good. And, uh, you know, you just, yeah, it was, it, it was just hard, you know, but he, he was just very practical about it, you know, and I think his mindset helped him get to the point where he is today because he just, like I said, he, he wouldn't listen to doctors. When we first got him to uh, Virginia, they, they said the same thing in Richmond. They uh, took a week to just basically analyze him, watch him, test him out, whatever. And then they had a big family meeting with all their, all the therapists, all the doctors were in there. And they said, well, we'll keep him for four to six weeks. We really don't think we're going to get much out of him, um, but we'll try our best. And he ended up being there, what, seven months because he kept improving and he didn't mess around. Um, you know, he had no voice tone. And at first they weren't sure if they damaged his vocal cords or if it was just from lack of use. Cause they said they're a muscle like everything else. And he lay there and he didn't use them. So when he first would try to talk, there was just no tone. So it was like, he was just like reading lips, you know, but over time as he, as he kept trying to talk, it got a little bit stronger. And then it was just like monosyllable answers because he's got expressive aphasia. So it's, it, he has a hard time like finding his words. And so it took him a long time to try to get a, you know, just started out with yes, no, keeping everything really simple and stuff. But even with that, he was already taking charge. I mean, I remember the doctor walking in, like when he was first coherent, he just takes the clipboard out of his hand with his working arm and he's looking at it and he lays it in his lap and he's reading all the meds they have him on 
And he's pointing at him and he's shaking his head no. And the doctor's like, at this point, he didn't have the plate in his head yet, you know, because we still had the brain swelling and the drain tube in and the sensor. Um, and he was basically wanting him to take him off all his pain medications because they were just making him groggy and loopy and slowing the whole thought process down. And he didn't want to be on him. So he was basically just pointing at all those saying, you know, no. <laughs> and the doctor was like, well, we'll, we'll wean you off of them, but we'll kind of leave them on there in case you need them. That way, if you have a migraine or whatever, you know, the nurses can give it to you because we take them off, they can't. And from that point on, once they weaned him off, he never had anything past extra strength Tylenol, um, which, yeah, which was crazy, but he wanted to be clear headed. And yeah, he just, he just amazed him because they were like, you know, your rest is just as important as your therapies because one of the first words he would say was more, you know, he wasn't done like, okay, your therapy session is done. And he's like, no, I don't want to go back to my room and rest. I want to work. I mean, he was just, you know, and they finally gave, gave, gave up because I was basically his co-conspirator because he would not go. If I wouldn't help him from his bed to his wheelchair, he would have done it himself. You know what I mean? He, and, and he very well could have. It just you'd have to risk him falling when he didn't have the plate in his head yet. So I would help him because he had to be strapped in his wheelchair at first. But he, he could get around pulling with his good leg and his good arm. He would, he would get around. But he basically transitioned from a wheelchair to a walker. And he had a leg brace to help with his drop foot on his right side to a cane within three months. Um, it was an electronic leg brace and a cane. And then he refused. They finally took the cane off because he refused to use it. Um, you know, because they'd catch him walking around all the time. Justin, you really need your cane. It's like, good luck. You know, I tried, but he won't use it. So, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's just, you know, if he wasn't in therapies, we were walking laps in the the halls of the hospital. I think I knew every painting, every hallway of that entire hospital and the parking lot because he didn't want to sit still. He just want, but you know, that was his job too. Um, he was just used to going a hundred miles an hour with his hair on fire. So to sit there and tell him, Oh, rest. He's like, what is that? You know, but uh, I was very thankful at that point. I realized the old Justin is still there, you know, cause sometimes, like I said, just depending on where the brain is, is damaged. It, it does affect their, their personality. Some of those guys, you know, they have to give them drugs to help them sleep. They have to give them drugs to help wake them up. They got to give them drugs to motivate them to do their therapies, you know, and they're on so much stuff where Justin was on like nothing uh, except for muscle relaxers because he had so much tone and spasticity on his right side that in order to do any kind of therapies at all, his right side was just locked up and stiff. You know, he couldn't. So other than the muscle relaxers, um, you know, he had him off like all the pain meds and everything. And he just kind of went for broke, you know, um, but he did the work, you know, other than me just being the co-conspirator and, you know, helping him escape wherever he needed to go or walking. So he'd have an, cause someone had to be with him, you know, like when he was in his walker, they have walking belts and stuff like that. And the nurses would show me cause they knew he'd do it on his own if I wasn't helping him. So basically I was just kind of along for the ride and trying to keep up with him. But, um, I, I was so thankful at that point, you know, just that, okay, the old Justin's in there, that, that same personality that got him where he was in his career 
was helping him get through all that rehabilitation because with brain injuries, nothing happens fast, nothing. Um, and most people just give up because it, it takes so long because you're basically trying to retrain the brain, what you have left, you know, his was a physical injury to the brain. So there are parts that were never going to come back, you know, and I just remember, uh, it was one of the neuropsychologist guys, um, told him, you know, Justin, you've done everything that's within your control to improve. You've improved way beyond what anybody ever anticipated or expected, but there are some parts of your brain that are just permanently damaged and it doesn't matter how much you do. You can't, you can't get that back. They're missing. They're gone. It's dead. So you're not going to wake up miraculously. You're not going to have expressive aphasia. You're not going to wake up miraculously and have that connection to your right side again. Um, he walks, but just because through a series of leg braces and therapies, he was able to get his muscle tone back so he could weight bear on that leg. And he got enough core strength for his balance to where he's just like lifting up with his left and he'd swing that right leg and plant it down, drop it down, you know. But that was just brute stubbornness and, you know, his getting in physical condition. But he still doesn't have like controlled, coordinated movement of that side because of, you know, he can't do anything about that. So he'd done everything with his control, but he's just like, you can't do anything past this point. And that's why uh, on a hunt trip, which I, these things are great because these, these veterans compare notes, you know, so it's like stuff you hadn't even thought of. We travel all over. We've been to different brain centers. Um, anything he, he was constantly researching new therapies, new treatments, anything that would like push him past whatever plateau he was on. Um, and then he happened to go on a hunt trip where some guy brought up stem cells. He's like, Justin, have you ever had stem cell treatment? Because that way it's working from the inside. It's regenerating the damaged parts. It's helping rebuild the stuff that was damaged. And honestly, we'd, I'd never heard of it, you know, but this group of guys that he was on this hunt trip for uh, basically paid for everything. And we had the lady that owned the stem cell company and, uh, I think he was a retired, what was he, Justin, a retired EMT guy or firefighter or something like that, a paramedic. But anyway, he traveled. He's the one that administered him, you know, just showed up at the house before I even had a chance to research it. You know, we're like, wow, okay, we're getting this done. But um, but that's what kind of opened our eyes and started the path on the stem cells. But before that, it was just basically all him and a lot of tenacity and just stubbornness and not, you know, and he, he always seemed really puzzled. People were just like, wow, you know, you're amazing. And he couldn't figure out why people were just baffled at, at his recovery. Because he's like, what else was I going to do? You don't have a choice. You know, you wake up and he was young. I mean, 23. So your entire life's in front of you. And, you know, he's like, what, what, else, what, what else was I going to do? There, there, was no, there was no other option. You're going you're gonna to fight to get your independence back, some quality of life back, you know. So to him, it was like, it's a no brainer, you know, but other people were just, even the doctors and therapists, I kept in touch with that original group that basically laid the foundation. And I remember when he was first discharged, um, one of the doctors called and wanted to know how Justin was doing. I'm like, well, actually we're at the gym right now. He's on the treadmill next to me. And he's like, excuse me. And I'm like, yeah, he's on the treadmill next to me. I said, you want to talk to him? <laughs> but, you know, I've sent them pictures and videos of him working out and, 
that was one of the things that like when they put him in a support position, uh, they put him in their special forces gym. And so they got top notch physical therapists, trainers, dietitians, you know, and uh, the uh, the Thor three program. Yes. Yes. And they were constantly just, they just fed his, his hunger for recovery. You know I mean? He had all these guys and everybody kind of approaches it a little bit differently. I think it was great because it just constantly just kept him challenged, kept him working and, you know, improving. And so anything, whether it was diet, some, you know, some kind of exercise, he was willing to do it, try it, you know, but, uh, yeah, he's, we call him our walk and talk and miracle. Cause from that first prognosis, they said, Oh, Hey, you're going to be taking care of him for the rest of his life. I'm like, man, you sure look good for a vegetable. (laughs) I mean, I just, you know, but I mean, we, we didn't do anything. I mean, we were there for support. I was basically, I tell people I was the bag lady in the appointment center. He did all the work. You know, I was just carrying around bags of braces and wraps. Cause when we first started it, you go into the gym and it'd take about three hours to get a workout in just because you were strapping him to a machine or taking something off or putting some kind of brace on, you know, and he basically tell his therapist, Hey, I want to be able to do this. Help me out. Cause I need to protect my wrist or my elbow or my knee or my ankle. And they would jerry rig something or make something literally to help him do that. You know? So, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite the adventure. <laughs> well, firstly, I want to thank you for a couple of things. I want to get to Justin again. And obviously Carissa will talk about when, when you guys kind of, you know, your paths crossed as well, but two things. Firstly, um, the, I think this is an important perspective for people listening. I may well be a military dad myself in, you know, two or three years. And what I see from a young boy or girl's eyes is these recruitment posters and commercials and, you know, Instagram accounts. It looks yeah. amazing. It's, it's all rock music and jet skis. And I would sign up That's in a heartbeat too. Yeah. The and, club. <laughs> yeah. And of course there is, I mean, I'm, I'm a firefighter for my whole career. There's so many great things about that profession as well, but it also comes with the fact that you might die. And so yeah. I think from a parent's point of view, it's important to hear, you know, a kind of pseudo worst case story like this. Um, you know, the worst, worst case, are obviously the people that are lying in the cemeteries now. And then, you know, as you touched on the other side of this, I want to pull from is is the same in law enforcement fire if we don't die we don't become a statistic oh this you know and so you hear i had one of my um my law enforcement guests who's a canine officer and he said um i have what they describe as a non non-fatal injury well they these injuries whether it's an amputee or they're carrying shrapnel the rest of their life or tbi yeah it didn't yeah. kill you doesn't mean it's not going to be what with what should be described as a life-altering injury so i think that's another important part of this whole story which ultimately is if people are going to send our young men and women to war they need to do it when there's absolutely no other way around it and i think world war ii for example is a good example of you know i think most people would agree but some of the other conflicts around not naming one specifically you could argue well could this have been solved in any other way or could we just have spent sent our special forces and not the rest of the you know, the forces which a lot of the Green Berets talk about. You know, maybe they should have just sent our most elite, train up militia, kill the worst of the worst, shut down the training grounds, and then get the, get the hell out of there. So it's yeah. so important to hear the Gold Star families, you know, families of people who were injured and so many of the voices that have come on the show. So I want to thank you for that perspective. I want to, want to get to you, Justin, just for a second. 
just through your eyes. I had um, Joe Lowry on the show, who was another Green Beret that was shot, um, you know, massive TBI as well. And he's had this incredible recovery. Um, there was another guy who was actually a bull rider, Clint um, Anderson. And when he awoke from his TBI, was unable to swallow, talk, I mean, all these things. And it's, it was incredible hearing him kind of articulate the mindset behind his journey. Now, I've seen you on the videos that you have on YouTube where you're not just moving through a gym, you're walking up boxes and jumping off a box, which I think people would argue anyone who hadn't had any sort of injury would struggle to land properly. Um, yeah. So, Justin, I would love to just get, you know, your mindset. You wake up with this injury. What was your self-talk that pushed against the maybe that negative side to give up and actually cause you to fight for every one of these micro steps no uh, like um for my perspective or um, um mentality okay um i got hurt rather than um, um whining and trying and um, um getting depressed um why not just you know um, move past and um, try and make um, um, improve and um, gain all of whatever whatever um, happened to me better as fast as I can. No. Um, Kind of, um, some of the times I get a little bit uh, frustrated, but, um, you can't do that because, um, why? Um, you just, even if I'm angry or, um, um get upset, I'm still going to do this and pass through it, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. I um I had a near career-ending back injury a few years ago as a firefighter and was doing the regular PT route, and it wasn't really making much of a difference. And I found this thing called foundation training, which just is this movement practice. But I remember one of the benchmarks that was – emotionally you know incredibly powerful was being able to pick up my son again who was probably how was he like four or five at the time were there any benchmarks that you hit that were particularly powerful as you progressed through your recovery uh, yeah um able to um walk again um and then bits and pieces um able to um, talk again, um, just um, one word, and then um, 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 three sentences, and then able to now express um, full um, conversations. Another one, um, getting rid of all of the self-dependent yeah, all of the braces. Um, yeah, just um, getting all those braces. Um, everything so that I can you know, 
fully function whatever I want um, to do without any help or support. Yeah. Yeah. That was his goal. And even when he did have to have supports and braces, he would never use anything that he couldn't get off and on himself. He's like, if you can't teach me, if I can't physically like get it on one, one armed or one handed and, you know, figure out how to get stuff off and on, then I need something else because he didn't want to be dependent for someone getting it on and off of him. And then, then it was his goal to work his way out of those. So, yeah. And he's, like I said, it like uh, the last thing he had for his leg was an Ideo leg brace, which they originally designed for limb salvage guys that had a lot of massive like nerve damage and muscle damage um, because it supported their knees and ankles and their foot. And that basically allowed them to walk and run just like they had, you know, they still had their leg, but it was basically useless. But with this brace, they could do that. And then they figured out some of these TBI guys that had paralysis on one side, it worked for them. And that's what allowed him to get his muscle tone to let him go from a walk to a jog, you know. Um, but yeah, he just, you know, and he worked his way out of that. Um, we went to get him another one because he put so much muscle on his legs that it was rubbing and pinching and stuff, you know, which was a nice problem to have. But when we went back, it was funny because they did the mold to make him a new brace. And then he was out there doing PT with the guys that were just learning how to use the braces. And he was out there doing the same stuff they were, but he didn't even have one. And the doctors were like, he doesn't even need one now. And it's like, yeah, but he wants <laughs> one for backup in case he ever injures something or whatever. He doesn't want to be back in a wheelchair. So he wants to have something that fits his leg now just in case he needs it, you know. But, uh, yeah, that was his goal. He just wanted to work his way to where he was completely – he he didn't want to be dependent on anything to walk, to whatever, you know. So, yeah, those were those were huge things. I mean, the first time he put that idea on and I sent a video to his dad where he was jogging across this field and he was running upstairs. Um, yeah, it just brought his dad to tears. And he's like, I just, that's the first time I've seen my, my son, you know, running – since his, his injury and, and to be there for the whole time and see where he started and what the prognosis was to where he got himself. Yeah. It was, it was just amazing. You know, Incredible. the mind's a powerful weapon to use. So. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the stem cell stuff because I know that's one of the main reasons that we're doing the, the conversation today to help kind of bring awareness and, and fundraising as well. But before we do, Carissa, you've been sitting there <laughs> listening so far. So walk me through when you guys first met and, and kind of bring us up to date from that side. Um, so we met um, on Match.com, actually. So did so I, I and my wife. Really? Yes. I have heard so many successful stories of people meeting on dating sites. And before meeting him, I was, I, I don't know, I thought it was just like an old school thing. You meet somebody you know, at church or out and about and... A lot of, I guess it depends on your dating site that you're on. You know, I feel like with Match, I had gone on there. I didn't know if I'd come across anyone, but my sister's like, why not look and see what's out there? And I liked with Match that you pay a fee and it's a higher fee than others, whereas the other ones are free. And then you know that the other person's not messing around. You know that they're actually looking for something too. But for me, I, I know what I stand for and what I will and won't accept. And so on my match profile, I had Trump all over it. <laughs> I had that I was a conservative, a Christian. Those are things that I just do not budge on. And I just felt like 
with the dating side, it kind of weeds out the awkward first date or what do you believe in or what do you stand for? And if it goes bad, you know, it's awkward the rest of the time. So when I came across Justin's profile, well, quick, something I want to add. So whenever you sign up for Match, you have, as you all know, your preferences. So I, at that time, I didn't want to date anyone under the age of 35. I just felt like men take a little longer to mature. <laughs> so that's, that's going to come. It's pretty funny because I had my age set at 35 and then being in Corpus Christi, Texas, you have a distance option of within a hundred miles or the whole country. I'm like, okay, well, within a hundred miles of Corpus Christi, you have farmlands and there's not really anyone around and, or then you have the whole country. And so it's like, okay. So I put the whole country, I put age 35. Well, Justin isn't even 35 yet. And so somehow by the grace of God, he popped up on my match profile or my match dating site. And so I saw him, I thought he was really handsome. He had mentioned he was a green beret, but just he had his beliefs on there. Family seemed important to him. He loved animals. That's another big part of my life as well. I used to rescue animals down in Corpus Christi, Texas. And so I liked him. Well, come to find out later on after we were already together, he thought I was a catfish. So he wasn't going to like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it took him about a day. And then I saw the notification. He liked me back. And I just, I was really excited. I mean, I didn't have, I was hoping you know, it would turn into something, but you never know with this world on dating site, someone can post a picture and they're 200 pounds heavier in real life, or they say they believe in one thing and their character shows another. And so we talked on the phone every single day since we matched. And it was about a week before he decided to drive down to Corpus to meet me. I mean, we had great phone conversations, talked about politics and religion and our family. And he just, he had told me before we met, he had a really special feeling about me. And I felt the same way. So I just remember the day that he was coming down, I had a knock at the door and I opened it and it was a bouquet of roses. And the one thing about Justin, since we started dating, he had sent me flowers every single week for almost two years. I mean, it, my family always said, oh, that won't last forever. It's just the honeymoon stage. The <laughs> thing about Justin is that it isn't a honeymoon stage. That's just who he is. He's just He's a manly man who's so loving and caring and very protective over those he loves. So I saw that bouquet of roses. And I'm like, okay, I think this is going to go well. And so later that day, he drove down to Corpus and knocked on my door and I opened the door. And I just remember him standing there and he goes hunting a lot. So he had a cooler full of venison, cheddar, jalapeno sausage. And As you do. <laughs> I was like, all right. And he had this full beard and just the biggest smile on his face. And he just said, wow. And it's like, we just stared at each other for what felt like five minutes. I mean, to other people, it may have been really awkward and creepy, but there was just, we made a connection on our phone conversations that the connection when we saw each other in fate, like person to person, it was just indescribable. And so I had him come over to meet me because with his expressive aphasia, if he's in a loud environment, he can't focus in on your conversation. He hears everyone else's conversations and voice levels at the same. I guess yeah. if it's loud, he can't differentiate between it. And so I offered to cook him steak dinner at my house and he came over and it was just had an amazing time. I mean, we stared at each other a lot, but people always tell you when you know, you know, and I feel like you don't really understand that. And it doesn't make sense until it happens to you because for a long time, I mean, my parents got divorced my senior year of high school, and I didn't really know that many 
couples that had stayed together other than my grandparents. And so I, you know, I had some doubt in my mind, but it's just like when you find the one, it's just, there's no other questions about it. I mean, we got together that same day that we met and we were engaged four months after that. So it may seem crazy to others, but like I said, you just know when you know, and I don't know, he's just, he's been such a blessing. And like Julie said, he's just a walking, talking miracle. And I love Justin for him. You know, I, I think the military background's amazing. My grandparents, my uncle, my aunt, my cousin are all in the military as well, different branches. And I just, that says a lot about someone that's willing to put their life on the line to fight for this country. My father said, and I invited him over to have dinner at my house. But that's probably the only man he would allow to come over to his daughter's house without meeting him first and feel comfortable and safe about it. So <laughs> Beautiful. So, well, Justin, you just were out of the room for a second. I met my wife on match as well. And it's funny because I will I will share my story with you because it kind of aligns. We I went <laughs> I came out of a divorce and then fumbled my way through dating in my kind of mid thirties, went on plenty of fish for a bit. I don't advise that to anyone ever. It was kind of like the montage from those comedy movies for the dating. But I agree with the match. When you've got some skin in the game, you have to pay and then make a profile and all that stuff. It kind of does weed out the people. And then you can kind of put who you are. And, and then, uh, you know, the, the people that are actually attracted to that will come out. And I met my wife. We went on a first date. And I took her out to dinner the next day. And we basically lived together ever since. And we got engaged 10 months after we first met and we're married i think it was two years but um the same thing i when you hear people say oh so and so is too clingy i would just argue that you're with the wrong person because i'm not talking about being you know restrictive on the other person but if you just want to be with someone all the time that simply means that you're just in love with each other so if it's a one-way relationship that means you're simply with the wrong person but i agree 100 percent. when i saw my wife for the first time like I said, 10 years later, here we are. So that's amazing. So Justin, from your perspective, I just heard um, Carissa's kind of perspective of that. Walk me through your Match.com experience and, and onwards. Yeah, Mike, um, I was um, kind of um, bummed out not finding anybody. And then um, like I was going to delete my profile um and just um i'm done with um dating just um it um if it happens it happens and then um that um evening or that night uh um uh, Marissa, um um messaged me or um liked me and then uh just beautiful and then uh I think I um, was really, really tired, and then um, I didn't open it. Um, just oh, awesome, yeah. And Are you googling the, to make sure it was real? No. And then <laughs> the next day, um, the next morning, I opened it up um, so that I could uh, actually um, uh, read um, her entire profile and pictures. Awesome, but I feel like it's um, um all of the um likes and um um just everything aligned. It can't be, yeah. She's too um perfect, and then <laughs> yeah, 
I don't know. And then um, I kind of um, um, private message uh, and talk uh, back and forth. And yeah, just, yeah, eventually, yeah, my, uh, when I um, first talked to her, um, um, just in my mind, she's the one. And then I was um, just talking to her um, back and forth. Uh, and then the drove down and uh, opened the door, her door, and just, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. She's not but a catfish. Thing, <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, I just like it was God's work because like he said, he was going to delete his profile that evening, yeah. the same day I came across him. And like I said, my settings are at 35 years and up. He wasn't 35 yet. So there is no reason that he should have popped up on my match profile because he wasn't within my preferences. So the fact, it's just crazy how like the yeah. stars align. And then um, um, my prior parameter um, um, way um, beyond um, corpus. Yours was like the local area, yeah, yeah. whereas mine was yeah. a lot more broad because yeah. even the local area wouldn't have popped up on yours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's crazy how things work, you know. You just know it's God had a hand in that because what other way? And then we would have never, without online dating, we would have never crossed paths because I worked down in Corpus. I worked out. I went home. You know, when you get older and you're you're past the college life, and you're you're kind of trying to settle down. I didn't really. I would travel. I go to concerts, but I never would would have crossed paths with him. And he was always hunting and working out and coming yeah, home. Yeah. So I mean, how would our lifestyles yeah. have would have ever crossed? You know. So I definitely recommend online dating and. I'm glad to hear your success story as well. I need to get Mash.com as a sponsor of this podcast, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's funny with mine is it was the other. My wife's six years younger than me. I think she had her parameters set of five because she didn't want any quote-unquote old dudes. Um, So I, (laughs) I managed to squeeze in there. But conversely, we lived just a few miles from each other. We shopped at the same grocery store and we never, our paths never crossed until that one moment. Notice. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Well, let's talk about stem cells then. Um, you talked about one of the hunting retreats, and I know again on the video, you know, that's something you were able to get back into. Obviously, you know, it, it's it's the the wilderness within the U.S., not obviously overseas combat now that you're using a weapon for, but you were able to have that community, that camaraderie, and kind of re kind of reconnect with the the uh, community that you love so much. What were some of the results that you were getting from these these veterans? And then where, you know, where is it that we're trying to move towards from here on in? Um, but, um, when I was um, just um, medically retiring, I started hunting. Um, my first hunt was um, um, West Texas. But... um. And then uh, the next um, the next day, um, helicopter um, uh, um, shooting. Uh, helicopter hog hunting. No, um, uh, coyote hunting. But uh, oh, same hunt. But the next day they did helicopter hunting. Yeah. But uh, um, and then moved um, retired um, medically retired came to Texas, and then yeah. Uh, the next year, 
we went um, Veterans Outdoors um, guys invited me to go alligator hunting. <laughs> and then um, that was awesome. And then um, I met another Green Beret, um, um, Travis Wilson, uh, who um, was um, kind of um, did no did stem cells before and um he um told me all about it and um you should seriously um try it and um um i have um a contact the owner of the stem cells um revive a cell let me know no I would do anything um, to help even um, improve whatever, but my main focus was my speech, just um, kind of, it's frustrating a lot um, with my speech, just, um, off and on, but my main focus was um, able to um, talk more and um, um, talk better. Um, just fluently. Yeah, and then um, okay. Um, uh, I'll talk to her. No, her. Um, he. Um, Travis called. Um, Raquel, the revival cell, um, 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 on the phone. And then within, um, a week, um, um, she, um, came down with the, the injection guy who, uh, water, um, was a 30 years, um, firefighter injected all of my um joints and then um got a um stem cell injection iv and then within a couple months yeah my um shoulders um um don't hurt um my joints my knees don't hurt and just that was awesome. And then I didn't really notice, um, but every time I talk to my friends, um, um, haven't seen them forever or just haven't seen them for a week or whatever, or at the gym, just talking to um, people, um, gym friends. And just, they um, told me, your speech is just amazing. Yeah. So that's um, why I um, noticed the difference, not from from myself. It's hard to um, gain, um, yeah, gauge myself um, how my speech 
was improved, but yeah, yeah. yeah. all of my um, friends, yeah, and, and people yeah. that were around him just observed that it was that it was smoother. He seemed to find his words a little quicker, a little easier. It wasn't as stunted um, and as slow as it used to be. So, yeah. When I had met Justin, he had had two stem cell treatments, one being the one that he was just talking about. And these treatments are very expensive. Most of our veterans can't afford that. I mean, most people can't afford it in general. I mean, you have direct um, IV push or you have a slow drip by IV or you have joint injections. And it depends what you want to go with, with how much it's going to be. So for instance, an IV drip, there's for Justin, long story short, you couldn't afford these treatments. And so I wanted to start, originally started to go fund me to raise money. And I was going to ask his permission first, because the thing about these guys is they don't like handouts. And this, there's so many people that want to help our veterans. So many of them feel like that's a handout and they don't, they don't want to ask for help and they don't really want to accept it. But I wish that they could see in the eyes of patriots and just our your everyday American like we want to help we didn't put our lives on the line overseas we want to help out in this way you know I mean you fought for our country you fought for our rights and we want to do whatever we can to take care of you and so with so many people wanting to help him and me wanting to do something about it <clears throat> since I mean he's about to be my husband I decided to not ask his permission and mm -hmm. just do it so I ended up um quietly raising money him or me and his family and all our friends started, you know, making posts and reaching out to people. Well, it was supposed to be a secret and his, one of his groomsmen, I won't say his name in case he listens to this, but he knows what I'm talking about. He texted Justin one day when we were at lunch and he said, Hey bro, why are you raising funds for a stem cell treatment? And I immediately took that phone and tried to play it off. And long story short, I didn't lie to Justin, you know, I know I was doing good, but I wanted to go ahead and tell him and share, I mean, how much support he had behind him. Well, I had actually reached out to Donald Trump Jr. and got a video from him, um, sent him Justin's story and everything. So after I lunch, I sat him down in my house and played the Donald Trump Jr. video speaking to Justin and just letting him know, you know, we raised all these funds so far. We're trying to get you more stem cell treatments. And I was kind of nervous. I know Justin doesn't get mad or upset, but I didn't want to start off a relationship or a marriage, you know, going behind his back. And I was like, I'm sorry <coughs> That's you. And he just got really teary eyed and was so thankful and grateful to hear that so many people wanted to help him, you know, and like Julie said, I mean, he did as much as he possibly could. The doctors did as much as they possibly could. And it just gets to a point where you need something else. You need some more assistance. And so with me hearing just all the benefits and how far he came with those first stem cell treatments, we were able from May of last year to now he's had four stem cell treatments We've raised close to $200,000 and it's just, it's been incredible. All the amazing patriots that have stepped up. And when I wish you could hear him talking, not only when I met him to now, but I mean, five years ago to now, like, oh, yeah. how you're hearing him talk right now is so mind blowing to those that haven't seen him in a while. Or even my mother who comes up once a month, every time she sees Justin, she's just blown away because the thing about stem cells is you're not, you normally don't see results instantly. The cells work in your body for up to a year. And so for us to see results from these treatments within as little as a couple of weeks, it's just, you can tell in his speech or in his walk, it's just, it's mind blowing. And so with his, he had his two treatments before he met me and with cells for chalk, the fundraiser we started that started in May of last year, 
So it's just from him having four treatments in eight months as of today's date, we're not even going to see how far the stem cells are going to repair his body right now. We They're still working. And the thing about stem cells is the more treatments you do, you want to do them closer together because then they can work together to fight and repair those damaged cells. So, I mean, for the first round that he had last May, those are still working in his body. And then this last treatment, the end of December, he had the most stem cells he's ever had to date. And we were a little nervous. We weren't sure how it was going to work with his body, but he did amazing. And it's just, it's just mind blowing. Just the amount of cells working in his body right now, the support from all the Patriots, friends, families, even organizations that have stepped up. It's just, I, I love seeing just the outpour of support and love for Justin. I feel like he, not that you don't feel like you deserve it, but I feel like you, you're so appreciative and you, I don't know. It's just really incredible. Well, Julie, just go back to you for a second. Your perception, you're with him from lying in the ICU with, you know, tubes everywhere. What did you see with your own eyes as far as the uptick after the stem cells? The first thing I noticed was, and that was the first thing that presented itself was just the aches and pains. Because, you know, anybody who's got a weak side, you know, his right side's got the paralysis. So his left side was doing all the heavy lifting. It's doing the bulk of the work. Well, that means... And they told us this earlier on, you know, he's eventually going to end up back in a wheelchair because those joints are going to wear out a lot faster because they're doing all the work, all the heavy lifting. And the first thing that that he felt and noticed was just those aches and pains on the left side that was doing all the work were gone. And I'm thinking it even for that alone, for me, if it could repair the damage done to those joints and all the extra wear and tear they're getting because they're doing the bulk of the work that's going to keep him out of a wheelchair or out of a leg brace, or it's going to allow him that independence, you know, and then the speech. Yeah. has always probably hands down has been his biggest frustration because physically you get used to doing everything. I mean, it's just amazing how they adapt when, you know, you do things. Well, I mean, he can tie a tie with one hand. He ties his shoe with one hand and people watch him and they're amazed. It's like, well, you don't have a choice. And he's got, obviously because he had to have, he's got a lot of patience, but just to do, you know, we take a lot of things for granted when you got two hands and you're down to one hand. And you also got to think of, man, if you ever have a bad fall and break the good hand, where is that going to put you? Then you have no hands if you can't do absolutely nothing with this one, you know? So yeah, the first thing I noticed was just the, the recovery time from like when he worked out, um, the energy level, the the no aches and pains and then a little further down and especially now that he's getting more and closer treatments the speech smoothing out and like i said it's it's hard for somebody who wasn't there at the beginning to know like how bad it was um because like i said it was a process i mean there was like no speech no voice tone then he got toned back in his voice then it was like single syllable answers and then he could get three words together it was probably a year, maybe a year and a half before he could say like a full complete sentence, just a basic one, nothing fancy. So the littlest improvements mean everything. You know, if he can find those words a little bit faster to string a full sentence uh, to get his point across, you know, because 
I was there for the frustrating early on days where you could just see it. And it was like a guessing game. And it's like, you don't know what you don't know. So it's like, everybody's interrupting him trying to like help him out and find that word and feed him that word. And the doctors are like, yeah, but every time you, you interrupt him and try to help him, if you're wrong, you're not guessing right. Trying to figure out what he's trying to say. Then he's got to go back to square one, try to find that word. So it's like, you just need to be quiet, let him work through it. And then at a certain point, you know, then you can like intervene and, you know, but yeah, I've seen a tremendous improvement um, um, in his speech just from being, like I said, from what it was to where he's at now. And then from when he started getting those stem cell treatments, um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see how much more, because I, I just know just from having been there, just what a frustration it was, you know, just the just the hard hardness of just getting that point across and the frustration, you know, and it, it also, you know, first thing in the morning, Last thing in the afternoon, like he's worked out and he's fatigued, then everything kind of slows down. So speech gets a little bit harder by the end of the day because he's got to work 10 times harder than any of us to walk, to talk, and it wears him out. And that doesn't happen as much now, you know, where you used to be able to see a very drastic difference, um, you know, where middle of the day, you're pretty good. But like first thing in the morning, it takes you a while to kind of get up get the brain working, get that speech smoothed out, you know, wake up. And then in the afternoon, you'd see a, a pretty significant slowdown. And I'm not seeing that anymore. So, yeah, it, it is. And like I said, it, especially for these guys, you know, it's just, yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can do physically with this. It's working from the inside to repair that damage, something they can't do. They don't have the power to do but it's improving his quality of life. You know, it's improving his pain level. It's improving his speech. So it's making life easier for him. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm amazed and just, I'm so thankful, you know, um, that he's getting these. I'm thankful for the guy that first told him about these. I mean, I'm sure we would have stumbled across it eventually, but that's why I said, you know, a lot of times when you're going through this process and you're at different medical facilities for different things, they're talking and they're comparing notes about, Hey, I tried this, this worked for me. Have you tried this trying to help each other out? You know? Um, so I'm just very thankful that Travis brought that up to him and followed up and, and we got introduced to this and educated on it, you know, cause it's, it's made a tremendous difference in his life. Well, that's so good to hear. And I have heard I mean, even Joe Rogan's talking about, you know, some of the success that he's had and he's got a very, very big platform indeed. So, Carissa, tell me where people listening can help. I mean, obviously, you know, you're not just stopping the treatments now. Your goal, I'm sure, is to, to carry on, you know, with uh, Justin's treatment as well and maybe even expand to other people, I'm assuming, if the, the funds allowed it. So where are the best places that people can learn about this so and donate? To learn about Justin's story and to donate, you can go to www.cellsforchalk.com, C-E-L-L-S-F-O-R-C-H-A-C. So we're really close with an organization called Special Forces Charitable Trust. They work to help out Green Berets and their families, even Gold Star families. We're really close with them and do a lot of work alongside of them. And they offered a platform for us. And Cells for Chalk, this started out as a small fundraiser for one treatment that we didn't even know if we'd be able to raise the funds for, um, has blown up. And for our for donors to also you know get a tax-deductible donation, no write-off, 
our special forces charitable trust opened up this platform. So I own the salesforchalk.com and I routed it to this platform through special forces charitable trust, where it does show all Justin's information, the treatment dates, a link to donate. And as well as someone wants to, they want to have their own fundraiser to raise funds for Justin's treatments. They can do that as well, but all the information's on there and it is tax deductible. So every donation can be written off and all the funds that go to that account go directly to Revive a Cell to pay the invoices. So there's no routing the money around. It goes directly from there straight to Revive a Cell. The invoices are paid online and it's just a quick process. So Beautiful. Well, I want one more question about the home you're sitting in now. But before I do, just back to Justin for a second. It was Jason Casper that connected us, who's a Green Beret friend of mine, an amazing fictional writer now. How do you guys know each other? Oh, well, there we go. I'll cut that bit out then. <laughs> it, it, he must have heard of your story then, a, so that's probably how it is. <laughs> that's a good answer, though. I don't. It was a Green Beret friend who it was. He had he knew somebody that knew you, so that's yeah. Okay, that's what it was. All right, I'll I'll just cut that question out then. <laughs> All right, well, well then you guys are sitting in a very specific home. So just some of the last question before I you know round this up completely. Talk to me about the the home that you're in and the the foundation that created or or provided um, that for you. Um, currently, um. This is not the. He's are. living in a regular house now. Yeah. Oh, so I, I'm wrong again. That's two in a row. So the uh, the was it yes. the homes for yes. our troops? I saw that online. Homes for our troops. Um, we um, pick out um, um, a lot. Um, they secured it, um, paid for it, and then they a um, couple of weeks ago. They um, um, Zoom um, called us um, all of the um, um, construction um, contractor and everything, just um, making sure all of the bells and whistles and um, 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 uh, what you um, want to pick out um, is correct and um, now we are just um waiting um for um to um start building our house yeah the, what they call the groundbreaking ceremony so homes for our troops he has been awarded a fully adapted home um they're just not in it yet but it's yeah it's it's coming so they've, they've picked out everything they've submitted everything to the hoa to get approval on like house col colors and that kind of stuff and they're supposed to be doing the groundbreaking, I think, hopefully sometime this year, right? We, 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 yeah, we don't have an exact date, um, but they're supposed to be breaking ground on it. Yeah. So uh, they yeah. will have a very nice, fully adapted house. Every every little thing to make life easy, you can imagine, they put into these houses. Um, and they, they plan it to be their forever house. So, like, even though he's not, like, in a wheelchair now, everything would be adapted for the eventuality that, okay, if he got injured or something happened or when he's older, if he does end up back in one, they don't have to worry about fixing their house. It's already adapted for him, you know, so they don't just plan on where he's at now. They're looking down the road and, and they adapt everything. They're beautiful homes and they, they think of literally everything. So it's, yeah, yeah we're very grateful for him and excited about that. 
and it's um homes for our troops is constantly um making changes um 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 for any um previous home um homes for our troops um homeowner um hey um you should shoot no um we should uh, try and um, do this and um, they will um, make um, some changes and um, yeah. if need be at it um, and it's constantly um, changing. Yeah, it's just constantly evolving. They take the feedback from the veterans that are actually living in their adapted homes and they're constantly asking them, what can we do better? What What would help you out, you know? And they listen to that feedback and then they put those changes in the newer houses that they're, they're, they're building, you know, they incorporate them and change them and stuff based on the feedback they're getting from the veterans. So also, um, um, they are, um, constantly, um, making, um, conferences, um, to add, um, more people. And yeah. if somebody, is critical or um ter terminal they um basically front a line um so that they can build it um and live on it in it um until they um pass away yeah so that way they know their family's taken care of too yeah they get them in the house as soon as possible so all the veterans on the list waiting for house understand that and no one argues with that. It's like, yeah, if there's somebody that gets sick or they're, they're terminally ill or something like that, they get bumped automatically to the top of that list to get it, their house built, get them into it so that they can have that peace of mind and they're yeah. not stressed out about knowing their family's taken care of. So yeah, it's great. That's why um, it's a kind of a buffer. Yeah. Um, 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 we don't know exactly what time, they will um, break ground. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I'm glad I asked that question, even if I got my facts wrong initially, because it sounds like another incredible organization. And, and how heartbreaking is that, that again, these people that are terminally ill, I and mean, we hear a lot about that through the, the Hunter 7 Foundation, you know, the cancers that we're seeing in the military, that yeah, someone wasn't killed in combat, but doesn't mean that they're not carrying a terminal illness with them now. So... Well, I want to wrap up. I want to be mindful of your time. Just before I do, I'll just go to each of you and see if there's anything you want to say in closing at all. So um, let me see. Carissa, we'll start with you first. Okay. If, if anyone wants to follow Justin's journey, you know, get information, watch, you know, daily updates, they can go to Instagram and Facebook. And Instagram's at Cells for Chalk. On Facebook, just look up Cells for Chalk Facebook page. And along with our Homes for Our Troops journey, as well as stem cells, with Homes for Our Troops, we have three events. You have a volunteer day where local residents or people can travel and come help roll grass, you know, in front of the house or get to meet other veterans and the special forces. So we will update on that throughout all our social media pages as well. So everyone can join in Justin's journey. Beautiful. Well, while we're on the same screen, Justin, what about you? Uh, just thank you for um, able to... Um, do the um podcast and yeah just um able to um talk about my story and stem cells and the recovery and everything so 
It's amazing that you give this platform, you know, to not only veterans and military, but police officers and firefighters. You know, it's really amazing that you're giving us user voice and we really appreciate it and appreciate your service to this country as well. Thank you. Well, like I always point out, I mean, everyone knows the names Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber, but they should actually be hearing the stories of the people that are really making a difference in the world. So that's <laughs> that's my reasoning. Um, well, Julie, um, if there any closing uh, comments from you. Uh, I'm just grateful for your opportunity again, uh, going off of what Carissa said, because there's a lot of veterans out there that could really benefit from this that have probably in the same situation Justin is where you can only do so much physically and just kind of figure I'm at where I'm at now that, you know, we, we've had a lot of exposure and like through podcasts and stuff, we can get this information out to other veterans um, that could, you know, benefit from stem cell treatment. So I'm just very thankful for the opportunity to just kind of spread the word, share Justin's story because it's inspiring. I know how much it's helped him um, and improved his life. So I just, if we can do that for as many veterans as possible, that would be great. You know, just spread the word, get the word out there and let them know this is out there and available. So just grateful for the opportunity for that.